this guy thing, what does that mean? Is it, oh, it's on us? Or I'm picking up on him. Yeah. And so he, he dropped this Holy Spirit, awesome truth, out to George. And he's going to explain it to you right now. Then he's going to pray, and then we're going to. I wouldn't necessarily get overly excited that, that what you are about to hear has much to do with the Holy Spirit. But George Davidson and I go back about 35 years, and he's a literalist. And when John was making the point that unless us, and it's right from Scripture, the words are as they are in Scripture, that a kernel of grain has to die before it can begin to multiply. George wondered about that, that word, die. Does the kernel of grain actually have to die? So George and John and I had a little three-person meeting at the end of class last week, and we concluded that perhaps the better way to think about it is that the, the life changes in the kernel of, of, of grain, and that it, its nature changes that it gives up its former life and begins to sprout and become a new life. So we give George Davidson credit for this, <laughs> this question. Um, George, at, did you, George, did you hear that? <laughs> so John must have been thinking about this all week because he brought me a kernel of corn Seed corn, or, and it's not popcorn, it's too big for popcorn, I think. No, it's seed corn. It's seed corn, and we could plant this, and this kernel of corn would not really die, I'd, I would make the, the assertion. Its nature would change. Its former life would be given up, and that's pretty scriptural as well. And it would then be able to multiply, which, of course, is also a scriptural reference to what we're supposed to do with our new life. Uh, so that's about as far as I can take this analogy. So let's bow our heads and pray to open the class. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for the mind that you have given us to understand your word and accept your word. May edification take place in this place for the next hour. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you so much. Now, Jim, I want to see which one is you, the real one? <laughs> you are the one that was up on the, or the shadow. <laughs> We're going to get to that in just a second. Uh, it, it fixed my vest. Oh, okay. Sorry. Got to make sure my. Comportment is correct. <laughs> All right. Um, I'm so excited about this kernel thing um, because, as you may know, uh, I teach under the auspices of the Logos Institute, and we have classes all over Stark County in, in a number of different ways. And right now, on Friday night, there's be one being held at uh, a residence, a private residence in basically Perry Township. And there's about 25, uh, the most eclectic group of people I have ever seen on the face of the earth. We have an 82-year-old history professor all the way down to 19-year-old, 18-year-old young people asking the big picture questions and everything in between. And uh, it's a, a truly an exciting group to be in. 
And last uh, Friday night, we did two really cool things, I think. We studied the kernel, the John 12 passage, because they're studying some similar things th as you are. Now, it's not the same course, but it's some overlap. So uh, after we, I gave everybody a, a half of a cob of field corn, and they were holding it while I waxed on about John 12. And then when we all got done, when I got done talking, and we talked about what it means, and I used Jim's insight, I don't know where he went, but I used your insight to explain die, because it was so good, the, releasing your inner essence. Isn't that so much better, George? To release the essence of George Davidson? To give, to give that to God and let God take George Davidson and make of George Davidson whatever God. Yes, I... <laughs> That's awesome. So anyways, at the end of this talk and everything, after we discussed it, anyone who wanted to took one of the kernels of corn, and these young people that were having the house study at, their, their home, they're farmers, they're gardeners, like big-time gardeners. They have like a huge, uh, <coughs> what do you call it, a greenhouse. And their whole property is laid out in farming uh, beds. It's really cool. So we went someplace on the corner of their property, and we each buried one kernel of corn and it represented our lives and by doing so we were saying to God okay we don't even know what the harvest is but we're giving you our life and we're going to put it in the ground symbolically giving it to you and you bring out of it whatever you want so your insight and the discussion it had like big in implications on my life all week long okay uh, what I'm going to try to share with you right now is something that can only be experienced, not really described. It can be described, but it's boring. So the first thing I want to do, Dave, is I want you to shut off all the lights in this room, please. You have the authority to do that. Yes, you're the pastor. And while he's doing that, I need five of you to come and sit right here. And Jerry, I want you to be one of them. <laughs> you have to be one of them. Quick, four, four, of, four more. Nothing bad's going to happen to you. <laughs> I promise I won't embarrass you. You just all you have to do is sit up here. And then I'm going to have to have some of you else, you know, I want to tell a I sh I want to tell a bad joke about Presbyterians, but I'm afraid of offending you. <laughs> Should I do it or not? Because yeah, yeah, yeah. it's not me, my joke. It's Don Bartos joke. Do you want to hear it? You couldn't get Presbyterians to raise their hands at a pickup, at a holdup. Is that a bad joke? You couldn't get Presbyterians to raise their hands at a pickup, at a holdup. <laughs> Why don't I say pickup? You I'm, ruined it. I, I know I ruined it. <laughs> Anyways, I know I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask some of you to do some stuff right now, and you might feel odd about it, but don't. Just come and have fun. Now, as Socrates tells the story. Uh, you are to imagine these people having been chained into this position with chains around their neck from childhood. And this has been the totality of what they have seen. They have never seen anything in and of itself. The only thing they have seen is the figures, the shadows, the puppets of people walking 
on this side of the fire. There's a roaring fire in this big cave. So now I need some of you, just those of you who are creative, I want you to come up here and pass slowly by. And as you do, I want you to send a message from your heart to these people. Communicate something to them. Remember when you were a kid? Okay, now who's first? Come on, somebody else come up here. That's pretty good. Now, you're sp- no, you can't look at me. Now you have to say that to them. This is what this means. What does it mean, Phyllis? Now, the rest of you, I want you to start talking. I want you to tell, say out loud, loud enough for them to hear, what you think it is. You can talk. You're not allowed to tell them what it is. You just have the the illustrator must be quiet. (laughs) (laughs) Say it louder so they they can hear, because this is all they can see. Here comes something. Okay, we, we can turn the lights on now. Um, now, you just saw a great demonstration of Socrates' allegory of the cave. And who thinks they know what it means? So let's quickly identify what, is he, what does this allegory or parable mean? It's 2,500 years old. It predates Jesus by 450 years. <coughs> uh, we see dimly in this life. So these people represent the way normal human beings are seeing life. And what, are, what does... Right. I'm not sure you have it right. <clears throat> oh, you have it right. Yes, yes, yes. Brilliant. Because we are to imagine, as the story goes on, he says what? That one of the prisoners is set free and taken. Taken to a place outside of the cave. And as they get adjusted to the light, as they are getting adjusted to the light, finally they're shown the sun. And they see things for the first time in their life the way they really are. They see the sun as it is. That's how Socrates puts it. 
And of course, the sun in his allegory represents what? He doesn't define it. He's such a great educator. He lets it be, he just calls it the way things are. In other words, the truth, the big picture, the cosmic illumination. But he doesn't define it. That's what the cool thing is. They called it the summum bonum, the ultimate good, seeing the truth. Wow, that was, that's what it was all about. Because if, to Socrates' point of view, if that was your existence and all you saw were shadows of reality and on top of it, you held this gentleman's point of view that he's maintaining with all certitude that what he sees is really the truth. That would be the worst thing that Socrates said could happen to a person, to actually believe that shadows were reality. Do you, see, you feel that power of that argument? Wow. So now, oh. I'm not free, really. <laughs> no, now that you've seen this, ultimate truth, the summum bonum. What do you feel about those people? They need to see it too. They need to be free. Yes, Socrates said that this person would feel completely blessed, blissed out, and they would also feel pity for these people. Pity. What a shame. And so, he says that one of the evidences of having seen the light is you would be inclined, out of pity, to go back down here and do what? Thanks for coming back. Now I have to come, couple, just two of you come up here real quick and do, this, do the uh, show again. Quick, don't, don't hesitate. Oh, I'll do it. Ah, now, would you do it? Because she's telling you, sit back down there for a second. This is, this is pertinent to you. She's telling you what? The truth. What is the truth? The truth is life, is Jesus. Come out of the cave because what you are looking at and what you consider to be reality is what? It's just a shadow. It's not really the ultimate truth. You're deluded. Your own. You're mistaking. That is so awesome. Now let me ask you a question. I got to know this. Did you did you read the whole dialogue? Yes. That's exactly what Socrates says, that people will say to these people, you're crazy, you ruined your vision. You went out of the cave and you actually ruined your vision. Now you can't see anything. Now you're misinterpreting what really is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Isn't this? Now see, when somebody like you says that the only thing there is is science, what's going on? Yeah, it's something you, that you've experienced. And what the Christian worldview and what Socrates is making the claim is, he doesn't deny that this is real. What does he say? 
there's more behind it. It's just a shadow. But it represents something. What's it represent? A real hand. But to see the real hand, you have to do what? You have to come out of the cave. Okay, so thank you very much for... Let's go. Let's go. She wants to know who chained them down. This is a uh, set piece of philosophy designed by a master teacher. That's irrelevant. And he, it, yeah, he... So they could have gotten up on their own and left at any point in time. Um, no, without Phyllis, I'd be scared. No, not really. Okay. No, uh, he, in, the, in the allegory, somebody compels them to leave. Okay. And it's the beauty of... Uh, Socrates' mind and, and when where he was in time-space history is you see, he didn't have a set dogma to defend because this is pre-Christian. He's doing this how? Through pure intellect. He doesn't have a Bible or a revelation per se. He's, this is pure philosophy. This is as far as a human can go with pure philosophy. So, in his, in his mind, he, what he saw in his experience in life through reason, through observation, was that some people just seem to get out of the cave and get illuminated. And he came to the conclusion that because so few people do it, that it must be something that happens to people or they get compelled to go through the experience because most people don't want to. And why is that? Because... <laughs> This seems so real. It's just like the gentleman said. Somebody comes and says, oh no, there's this other world. There's this way of looking at life. There's this insight. And people say, (laughs) and so he believed that it would take almost like an intervention that somebody's gonna have to get grabbed and set, brought out. And of course, in the allegory, what, what is he? Who is he? Socrates, what's he claiming by telling the story? I'm, I'm the intervener. I'm going to bring you out of your shadow cave, and I will teach you. And in fact, this way he makes the claim in the Republic. I know how to set up a society so that people would be cosmically illuminated through reason. And you can read it, and you can say, oh, that's a bunch of garbage. I don't believe that's possible, whatever. But the weird thing is, is what? When you get to the New Testament, this is the precursor worldview that the New Testament picks up and ratifies and says this is the way it is. Socrates described reality really well. We're we're walking through a world of shadows and who's the true light? Jesus. And it's only when you come out of this world and through the grace of the Holy Spirit compelled as a good Presbyterian would say, right? By God's grace alone You don't get out of this cave because one day you sit here and you say, you know, this is boring. I'm going to go and see if there's something else going on. No, you like it. We like it. So God's grace touches us and pulls us and brings us out and shows us Christ. And then, of course, we have the choice, and Socrates' allegory pertains to this too, because he says that some people that go up and see the light, there's only two people, two two kinds of people in this world, Socrates says. Uh, One is the people that have gone and seen the light, 
and are on the way down back to the cave. And the others are the ones that are going out of the cave, ascending to the light. Those are the only two kind of people in the world. And so the first thing he said whenever he, he talks to a person is to find out, are, have you seen the light and are coming back to the cave? Or are you coming out of the cave and ascending into the light? Because he would change his teaching methodology based on which direction they were going. This making sense to you? Well, isn't that like what the Christian life is? People come out, they're brought out by God's grace and they're shown Jesus, and then they have to do what? As Christians, what do, what do we? Yeah, you have to, are you gonna maintain that posture of looking at the light? And in fact, are you gonna remember that light when you are asked to come back down and do what? go back to this cave and sit with people and send them messages and say, hey, I've been outside. I have been out there. I saw the true light. This is just a, f a fake light, the secondary light. It's a fire throwing shadows. I've been out and seen the true light. And the people are gonna say to you, you're crazy, you're whacked, you ruined your eyes or whatever. And you, your task is to convince them, no, I had a, a veridical experience, to use a philosophical term. Does anybody know what veridical is? Veridical. Yes, something that is truly true. It's much easier and simpler in the cave. It absolutely is. Life is much more simpler there because once you come out, see the light, go back in, you've got to live in two parallel universes. This is the world, and Socrates, you've got to read this. Socrates develops it. He says, the world is now consisted of people who give each other honors and acknowledge each other with prizes, degrees, uh, status, at who is best at identifying, measuring, and interpreting the shadows. No. No, the people that have never been outside, they've conspired together to give each other honors, prizes, and um, <clears throat> on, uh, status because they identify who's the best at interpreting and measuring and talking about the shadows. Because remember, that's all they see every day is a constant barrage of stuff going across. And of course, some of these people are better than others at interpreting it or at least making sense out of it. And that's Socrates' way of saying who? Who's that? Uh, there are no Pharisees at that time. <laughs> yes, George, who's that? Can you come out of the cave by yourself? No. No, no, it's God's grace. Only through God's calling. Uh, you have to say yes, but yes, it's God that does the initiation. Yes, God, God calls. Yes, that's a good thing. That's a happy thing because we know God loves everybody, right? So God calls everybody, right? I don't know. Is that right? Everybody God, God is not willing that any should perish but that all would come to repentance. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He so loved the world. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, over and over and over again, the New Testament says this. You know, it's, God's heart is open to everyone. And of course, then Presbyterians believe that the ones who heed the call and come out are the ones that the New Testament calls the elect. That's all. Is this correct? No? Somewhat? I'm getting there. I stand with John 
D- don't bother with don't, don't bother with it. Okay, then let's not bother with it. Okay. Then the leader of this church said, "Don't bother with it." What? Okay, thank you, because I'm going to say something else, that even theology can become what? Shadows. Like, theology can become really cool explanations about the way you think things are, but Socrates and Jesus would say, why don't you just come out and have a God experience and get your head blown open personally by laying yourself open to God, and then, you know, you're going to figure out, you're going to reason about it. He says that, Socrates does. He says, you'll make reasons about it. You'll define it. You'll try to understand it, but understand that the experience of God is bigger than any explanation that you're ever going to give to it, so we can have you live with that, right? No, you don't, because, because now if you really saw things the way they are, if you really see the sun, I mean, you know that's way bigger than you. If you see God, if you really know God, you know God's way bigger than you, so you're not going to think that you know as much about as God, as God. You would, unless you fell into spiritual pride. Yes. Yes. All right, well, what John does is he takes, he claims, the book of Revelation claims that, yes, he was taken out of the cave, and the characteristic phrase in the book of Revelation was, I was in the spirit, which means that God took me to a place and showed me things from God's point of view. But here's the little twisty. Then when he comes back from that experience, he has to do what we just talked about. He has to take what he saw and make it, somewhat relevant to us living in this world. So in effect, the book of Revelation itself is what? It's, it's sort of like a shadow. But it's a God-inspired shadow. Okay, and so if you believe him, then the way you know that you believe it is what? <laughs> You, get, you fly out of the cave and you fly to God. That's how you know if you believe it. All right, go ahead, and then we'll get to Terry. Where does, where does free will? Where does free will come in? See, that the... Free will, come out of the cave? Oh, I'm sorry, don't I know I make people frustrated. No, you know, you're not going to frustrate me. It's that that question itself has plagued for 2,000 years the whole discussion of what we're talking about. People argue about... This thing George Davidson just asked. Can you just sit here and decide to get up out of the cave or does it have to be God's grace? 
and right there, that's one argument. Then the next stage of the argument is, okay, now that you've said yes and you want to come out of the cave, was it possible for this person to do that too or were you personally selected? So each step of the way, there's these theology arguments. But what I want you all to see today is the big idea, the big picture, which is what? This is... What we see in this world is secondary reality. There is a primary reality, and that is the summum bonum, the ultimate good, and what Christians would call God. And I'm confident that I can say to an audience, God loves you and God wants to know you. That's the way I leave it. I, I, let, I just announce it to people. And, and if I'm wrong, I still am not making a mistake because uh, it's up to them that they have to work through their own theology. I feel confident of announcing that God, based on the text that I just showed you, God so loved the world, right? So that's, that's where I want to leave it and let everybody else, as I call people to have this experience with Christ, let the figuring out be on one, sta- on one side and the experiencing of God beyond another. Now, Terry. I, I think that C.S. Lewis also has a good metaphor. The same idea, a different metaphor, and it's in the great divorce, where the busload from the gray town gets to go to heaven, and among the people on the bus are some theologians, and they keep looking at their watch, and they're worried because they know there's going to be a meeting back in the gray town. They get to heaven, and they, ha- they see the glory, but they don't want to stay there because Yeah, that's a great point. That's a great thing. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know who they were. All right. So, you should be sad. Socrates will make you sad. If this is true, if that's all we see is secondary reality, what a pity to be there. Um, I think Suzanne and then... That's exactly Socrates' point, that everything is a medium, but God, or the ultimate truth, is the reality that we need to live in. And that's what John's trying to say in his revelation. Come experience it. Agreed. Come experience this and take what I'm saying as an, a reliable map. It's a map it's, it, I can tell you how to get out of the cave using the symbols. Just go down here and follow the trail. Go on, do it. But if you don't do it, you're never going to have the experience. Yeah, I mean, the book of Revelation has been interpreted so many different ways, but if we take it in its most simple sense, according to its title, it's an apocalypsis. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the title of it, the revelation of Jesus Christ not the revelation of uh, exactly when the Antichrist is going to break forth in this particular country. The revelation of Jesus Christ. 
And that, of course, is the whole New Testament, right? To have the experience of Christ. And then, you said it so brilliantly, how do we maintain that um, focus on Christ himself when we get asked to come back down and live in Shadowland? That's, of course, what the apostles went through. That's what all Christians go through. We're all going through this together on how to, how to having seen the light, how do we live out the truth in a shadow land and persuade others that there is a larger truth. All right, and I'm going to stop there on that before we move on. Go ahead, a couple more questions. Uh, you're always bad mouthing science, so I've got I to come up. Now, wait, now, wait, now, wait. I, I really? Buddy, you think, is that what I you think? I had a buddy in medical school that he, at this point, he, he was rebelling against Lutheranism because he persuaded so much. He thought we were going to find the answer entirely separate from God by the science in the end. Yeah. Um, well, I'm, I'm going to give a brief nutshell comment because I, I have to. You've, you've compelled me to do it. Epistemology is the science of philosophy that studies how we know things. It's, it's an investigation of how we know. You can look it up on Google. Epistemology. Episteme means to know. How do we know stuff is the ancient Greek question. And of course, Socrates was one of the instigators that caused this science to come to be because his questioning, his persistent questioning, caused people to think about how do we know anything? And so these are the answers. Do we know things for true, for real, through science? The answer? Yes. Do, now, here's a break point. Can we know the sacred realm? Can, is it valid knowledge? Is it true that you can actually know this world, this shadowy scientific world, but there's also another way of looking at life, and that is through God. You can have a valid, sacred experience. What do you think? Okay, so you have to believe that if you're a Christian. If you're an atheist, you say what? No, that's not a valid form of knowledge. That's all myth. It does, it's not really true. But of course, if you agree with Socrates, and everyone who's believed in God down through the ages and the Christian faith, then you have to allow for the fact that this is a valid way of knowing too. Can you think of other ways that we know? Ah, well, that's science. Empiricism. Through, through the observational senses, empirical knowledge. That's science. Knowledge Ah. Social knowledge. John Oliver you taught your whole career in the social sciences. The study of history, documents passed down from the ages, uh, first-person reports. Is there any valid knowledge there, or do you think the history is just complete? John Oliver wasted his life reading ancient texts. No, no, tell me, did you waste your life or not? That's what I want to know. John, don't make it more worse than it is. We're already way off. Now, this is epistemology. 
Did you learn real true stuff? <laughs> John, you're in existential crisis here. Of course you count. No, you know that some of the things you learned were true. We know a person Julius Caesar lived. No, John. No. No. <laughs> okay. Okay. Now, right after class, I'm going to put you with Jerry, and we're going to let you guys work it out. <laughs> All right. All right. Wait. Here's the psychological perspective. I think. Maybe not. Interpersonal knowing. Um. Well, as what as a subbranch of social knowledge. Okay, or here's another one. This is called self-knowledge, not tacit knowledge. Tacit, that's what it's called in philosophy. Knowledge that you alone know. You know stuff as a self. And so, Doc, maybe one self can have share self-knowledge with another self, and therefore then you can get interpersonal knowledge, interpersonal relations, psychological truth. Just stuff that you know that you know. Stuff that you know that you know. Yeah, you'd know it you know it from a science, but you also now know it true. You you know it again through your self experience. Whereas there's a lot of things your mom could have said, do not stick your hand in that fire because it will hurt, and you wouldn't have any self knowledge about it because you would have trusted her opinion in the first place and said, well, she must be right because she tells the truth, so I'm not going to put my hand in the fire. So you don't have self-experience or self-knowledge of what it ha- feels like to have your hand in the fire. But you put your hand in the fire, now you've got self-knowledge. Right? We all know this stuff. And then the last one is sense, common, meaning logic. Now, if you think you can know something beyond these five fields... I'm happy to hear about it. Uh, I'm not, it would be arrogant to claim that I know, right? But (laughs) I will commend this list to you and say, if you can figure out some other ways that humans can know, I'm happy, happy, happy to add it to the list, but this is my list. And Jerry, you'll be pleased to know that I believe that you should use all five forms. And the reason is why. Yes, because they've been proven, first of all, to be valid ways of knowing stuff. By common consensus, we all agree on this. But there's a deeper reason that's related to seeing the big picture. Why can I use all five of those? Because God made them all. So I don't want to argue with, when I can learn something from science, I want to learn it. But you can't learn everything from science if this is true. Is it making sense? If this is true, then you have to learn some things from this because this doesn't speak that language. Yes? <laughs> you want to do this. Well, see, actually, when I taught this, I, asked, I made the students rank them because by ranking them, you find out what kind of worldview you really hold. 
you find out what kind of person you are by ranking these. I think he gave me a follow-up on his friend, his medical school friend. Okay. Uh, we went separate ways. I went in the Army, and he went to Tufts and did a PhD in neuroscience. And we ran into each other in Washington, D.C. Uh, about six years later. This guy had a big beard. He's carrying a Bible, and he's a lay minister. What happened? What happened? Did he abandon science? Now, he allowed for science to, or sacred to become a vehicle or a medium of reality for him, and then he had to revamp his worldview and figure out how science fits in with the sacred, which is what we all do on a daily basis. Yes? They have to because, as Jim said, God made them all. They're designed to work in a holistic way. They're all supporting each other. But, but, and here's the big point, you can have self-knowledge, some form of logic. You can do science in this cave. You can run observations and you can do, but the one thing that you can't have in this cave is what? Right, so you gotta go out of the cave to have the God experience and that's when everything starts to fit together. You see how the true light fits in with the shadowy light. This making sense? So unless you come out of the cage, you will not know God. Uh, you'll know only God in shadowy form, which is really what I wanted to talk about today from Acts 17, but that's okay. You know something about God through the shadows, but you haven't experienced God as God really is. Really is. So Socrates would believe that religion itself can have this function of being a shadow. You can think you're really experiencing God when actually, actually you're just going through religious stuff. But this is the real experience. Yes, John? John, wait. I didn't mean it to do that way. No, in, when I taught this, what I did was I told students very clearly, I'm, put, I'm putting up the ways that we can know. It's your task to rank them. It's, I have my own ranking because I have my own way of having thought this through and how I understand it. But you have to do that yourself. And if you do it, then you find out, just like you told us. No, I don't think that's the way it should be. I think this is primary. But I don't mean it to be in any ranking at this point. All right, well, that's great. All right, yeah, go ahead. Is scripture a shadow? Is scripture a shadow? Oh, baby. How much, is the pastor gone? <laughs> um, this, is, this is, look at John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. Down in verse 14, it tells you who the word is. And the word 
became flesh, human, and lived among us. And we saw his glory. We saw the light. Full of grace and truth. Yes. All right, now, what is that describing? That's saying that the light, the summum bonum, the ultimate good, at a certain point in time-space history, actually moved from the realm of spirit and pure light and actually incarnated himself into a human being, actually became a human being, became one of us, for real, a real human and also God at the same time. And he came into the cave. Wow. And what did he do? What did he do? He acted, he worked, he did miracles, he preached, he taught, he radiated God, and he told everybody what? There is such a thing as the kingdom of God. You can really know God. And I can take you there because I am the way and the truth and the life. And if you follow me, you will not walk in the darkness, but you shall have the light of life. Is this not what Jesus said? I am the light of the world. So you follow me, I'll take you out of the cave, and I will take you straight up into the presence of God, and you will know God as God is, and you'll get your mind blown. This is what Jesus claimed. Please hold, just one second. As I, I really want to talk. I want to hear that, but I want you to understand the magnitude of this. So then, he, he did get ex of mana people to come with him out of that cave, and then he says to them, now you wait here for a period of time, because something really cosmic is going to happen to you uh, after he died and rose again. What was that experience? The descent of the Holy Spirit and coming into them for the first time, and he said, in effect, he said, you're going to get your minds blown. You're going to have an experience that was like the one I just got done living. That's how I just got done living. You're going to now live this way. So they waited, and how many people wound up waiting? Out of all the people that Jesus touched, how many were there that day? 120. Isn't that amazing? Only 120 waited in Jerusalem for this cosmic experience. Boom, it happens. And then what they started doing, Dr. Roger, is what? After they had that experience, then they go back into the cave and they start doing what? The same thing that Jesus did with the same power that he did it with because it's now the Holy Spirit and Christ living in and through them and they're trying to get people to go out of the cave. And one of the techniques that they use to get people out of the cave is, uh, I can't tell you personally right now so I'm going to write you I'm going to write you a letter that I'm claiming is a veridical shadow. It's a true shadow. It's a true description. And if you follow my advice that I've written here, what's going to happen to you? You'll come out of the cave and have the experience. So yes, in my opinion, Scripture is a secondary, true, reliable, but albeit shadow. It points to who? The Word. The Word. The Word. And that's what we have to experience. Then we turn back 
after, and, and to clarify our vision, to help us understand, we say, now, I had this experience, I'm having this experience, let me make sure that I'm interpreting it right. And we read the Bible, and this is claiming to be what? Yes, you are interpreting it correct. For example, Jesus said, don't be surprised if the world hates you. It hated me before you. So if people think you're crazy or out of your mind because you believe in a sacred zone in which God lives in the way and the truth and the life, if that's what people say to you, don't be surprised because they thought that of me first. Boom. And you read that, and it's supposed to do what for you? Clarify that, oh, I'm not really crazy. That experience I had with Christ really is true. Is it making sense? That's what I think the Bible is. It's a reliable roadmap. But you know what? When I, last time I went out to California, <clears throat> when I wanted to go out to the, um, uh, the Muir Forest, yeah. remember? You got there. Has anybody been there in the Muir Forest? John, Muir Woods? You go out there. It's, it's, like a, it's like God's own cathedral, right? The misty green light comes filtering through the redwoods. You go into it. It's like an awesome, sacred place. Well, I was reading the map on how to get there. Once I got there, what did I do with the map? I didn't sit there. I'm at Muir Woods. Wow. This is, that's what the Pharisees did. Wow. And actually, Muir Woods is here. Go into it. Have the experience. This is what the New Testament is saying. Go into God and have the experience. Then, on your way out, get the little book on Muir Woods, and it'll tell you all the details about the plants and the, you know, how tall the trees are, how long they've been here, blah, 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 blah. You get a little bit of clarification about the experience. But you're, once you've been there, you're never going to confuse this with the woods. Of course. That's the point. That's, you should use each of them. I'm, I don't, it's the scientists, the atheist scientists that are ones that want to delete the list. Rational Christians don't want to delete anything. They want it all. They want their epistemological cake and they want to eat it too. I, I thank you. <laughs> yes. Yes. All right. So Jesus is here. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Follow me. Um, yes, because uh, seeing Jesus in the flesh is having a real veridical experience, but it's not the same as God, the God experience that he wants you to have if you come out of the cave. Anyways, you can't have that experience anymore. Jesus is no longer here in the flesh. He was here one time, and that's it. Because he himself said that this, is, this isn't the real deal. This is just a temporary thing. The only reason he became a human, really, he said, was what? The real reason. Yeah, but the real reason he came was not to teach. The real came, reason he came was to do what? Where's that grain? Where's that corn? 
Give me that corn. The real reason Jesus came. This is what he's... All right, you pretend I have it. Uh, he, he came as a colonel to, to die, and by dying and resurrecting, he was going to bring forth this cosmic harvest. So the, the, this episode, this era, as cool as it is, is merely a prelude it's just the little beginning to the whole cosmic plan of redemption. And God doesn't want us to go back and say, oh, I wish I would have been there in Galilee when Jesus was doing this and that. No, actually, Jesus said, it's better for you that I actually leave because then I'll come and live inside of you and that will be way cooler than you watching me from the outside. Because if I'm living inside of you, then I'll do in and through you the same things that I did when I was here my first time in the first body. Because you're my second body. You see how much cooler that is? I mean, people don't, when they first hear it, they say, no, no, I'd rather, I would rather have been in Galilee with him. I wanted to see him. And his contention is, he clearly told the disciples, better for you that I go away. Because this is a better experience to have. To come out of the cave, let me live in and through you, and then you'll experience me that way. What do you think? Which one would you rather have? Galilee, but still in the cave, or out of the cave with Christ living in and through you? The latter. The latter. That's the core concept of the New Testament. Now, it's very interesting. It's 12 after, and let me see. I got to the first line of my notes. <laughs> it's incredible. But I hope you had a great educational experience. <laughs> I hope you learned a lot. Uh, does anybody want to have one final question or salvo? What did you learn today? Yes, sir. In, in the midst of these ways of learning, there are people who would want to resort, perhaps even as some of the drugs, hallucinogenic, yes. highly emotional experience. Yeah, that's a, that's a big-time amplification of the self-knowledge. That's what uh, psychedelics do. They amplify your self-knowledge. That's what psychedelic means, mind manifesting. If you take them, they amplify your thoughts. They amplify your experiences. They really bring them out. Stuff that's hidden in there that you've suppressed, boom. They just flow out, and you've got to deal with it. Now, before you leave, I want to give you one analogy, uh, and I want you to think about this this week. Hopefully, it'll be as fruitful as the grain. Uh, what is this? A prism. And what do we know, we know about prisms? What? That they refract the light. Okay, now in this analogy, oh, there's a nice little one. Let's see if I can get a better one. Can't seem to get the really good. Oh, that's getting good. It's a bad prism. Yeah, I, I can't get the I can't get the pure rainbow. There, there's a little bit of a rainbow. Can you see it? Can you all see it? Okay, now, this is what I wanted to talk about today, which we'll talk about next week. When you read Acts 17 this week, Paul in Athens, this is what he basically claims, that every religion in the history of the world prior to Christ is sort of like a prism. What does a prism do? It refracts light in different ways. God is the light in this metaphor. The prism itself is who? Us. In each culture, each civilization, each human, 
is experiencing God, but they're refracting the light imperfectly. Is it making sense? So we're all having a common experience, but none of us are big enough. No culture is big enough to capture the light as it really is. So we refract it, and then we think, then, then we spend our time telling people what? This refraction here, over here, is wrong, misleading, but that one over there is the truth. And when Paul comes to Athens, and he is in the religious, mythic, philosophical capital of the universe at that time, and he's trying to tell people about Jesus, he comes up with this metaphor that is essentially this. Everything that you always believed in the past, it's not that it's false, it's just not complete. It's a refraction. And I'm here to tell you the rest of the story so that you can have a cosmic experience with the true light. Now I want you to think about that notion that there is the true light, Jesus, then there's the refractions, which are the myths and the religions of the world, and how Paul handled that tension that we all face even in the 21st century is what we're going to talk about the next time. How do we deal with claiming this, that we have the true life, light in a world of refractions and everybody else claiming that those are true too? Okay, that's what we'll talk about next time. God bless you. Thank you for coming. Nice to see you again. Oh, thank you. Today is Earth Day. Today is Earth Day. And